It's the Ride All Night Podcast, with stories of friends and family of the band From Good Homes, started during the pandemic of 2020 and continuing until we're done. Thank you, we're trying some new things here. Okay, here it comes. We've got a million people to thank. Welcome to episode two of the Ride All Night podcast. It's Sunday, June 24th, and we're wrapping up a weekend of guerrilla gardening here in Montpelier, Vermont. We've taken down the fence in between ours and our neighbor's house, and um, we're tearing up the lawn. Susan Adams is our neighbor. She's 80 years old, and she's basically homebound. We've been working with the broader Montpelier Food Security Coalition to encourage people to grow more food during these funky times. On this episode, we welcome Robin Danar. I was able to track down Robin in Los Angeles, and this was uh, back in the first week of April, so just about three weeks into the pandemic. And now we are all addressing racial injustice since the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis, Minnesota by a Minneapolis police officer while three other officers looked on. And it's really launched a global protest and an outcry about systemic racism in America. Robin has been the production manager at the Telegram Ballroom for the last five years in Los Angeles. And we know Robin from way back in the day. He was the producer of Hip Hop Coming At Ya. Check out Robin's uh, history at his website. It's uh, robindanar.com. And uh, man, he's done a lot of stuff going way back from 1977 to um, when was it? From 1977 to 1986, he was a sound engineer at CBGB's. This was the this was the glory days at CBGB's. And then he went on to work at the Mercury Lounge in New York City from '93 to '97. And he's done all sorts of work as a sound engineer and a and a producer. And Robin is just a really sweet guy, man. We had a nice conversation. I met him way back when they were doing the he he pulled in the um, remote audio recording truck. To record hip hop at the George Inn a couple nights, and then the Fireside, and then the quickly modified location of the White Village, and the result is hip hop coming at you. Please enjoy this conversation with Robin Danar. So yeah, man, we'll cover a lot of stuff if we can get a little stuff for the film. That'd be great. But well, let's talk. A little bit about right now. Let's explain uh, where you are and um, just for posterity, what the fuck's going on here? (laughs) Well, I've gone through quite a variety of me's. Uh, I started out doing live sound and then I worked in the studio for years making a lot of records, you know. And then the live sound part took off again and a lot of the artists I was working with were at the top of the charts. And it was basically just following that. And then... I started producing only, and I did that for a while. 
And then I did a producer as artist album that came out in 2009. And that's when I realized that people weren't buying as much as they used to. And um, I basically saw some friends of mine that were building a venue in LA and I decided to help them build it and run it. It's called the Terragram Ballroom. Um, we're the best venue in LA. You can tell everyone that. <laughs> we got great sound, great sight lines, uh, great lights, and great people to work with. And we get a lot of great bands coming through. It's pretty amazing. We get underplays with people ranging from Queens of the Stone Age to Nicki Minaj to Iggy Pop. And then we get old bands that I worked with in my CBGB's days, like Television and uh, Patti Smith and Old Friends Guided by Voices. So we get a wide variety of great stuff, and I'm really proud of that one. Very cool. And who are these? And that includes Railroad Earth. Right. Just played there twice. Who were the friends that you that are that built this place, and that you worked they with? They own two amazing venues in New York. I first met them. Michael Swears, the main guy, and uh, I met him when they first built the Mercury Lounge in the East Village. And I saw this room, and at that point, I was touring with a lot of big name bands. But I just, I said, look, I don't care what you pay. I'm not looking to take a job, but if your sound guy ever needs nights off, I'm in. Yeah. So that's how we met. And it's been like that ever since. They built the Bowery Ballroom after that in New York, which is a classic at this point venue. It's been around long enough that I can say that. Yep. Uh, I did an album live there with Sia a couple of years ago, but passed through there with a lot of different bands. And uh, it's family. So when they came out here, they built a big, they did the same thing, but they flipped it. They built the bigger room first. Terragram's a 700 capacity room. And then they also built a place called the Moroccan Lounge, which is about a 275 cap. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, you talked about New York. Let's go way back, do a little bronological story about you. Where did, where did you come from? Where, where did this whole story start, your story? Albany, New York was when this, when my career got sorted out. Uh, I was going to college there at Albany State. And, um, uh, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do, but I was a music head and so were all the people I was hanging out with. I saw a jam going on one night and the bass player invited me to see his band. And it was a standard college band playing, you know, four hours worth of music a night while people got plowed and danced. Sure. But um, they were doing like Zappa and Captain Beefheart and Blondie and, you know, Yes. I mean, they were really creative. So I became really good friends with them. Uh, at the same time, I was making friends with a lot of college radio DJs late at night because that was more of what I was listening to. I was a little left of center. But in Albany, two things happened. The first is that the band that was doing covers started writing original music and they formed a band that was doing original music. Originally, they were called The Units and then they were called Fear Strangers later on. Um, at the same time, all of a sudden, there was a commercial alternative radio station there, WQBK. And all of us were in this family. And there was another band there called Blotto that had made noise in America with the song, I Want to Be a Lifeguard. So there was a real scene in Albany, New York, where people were writing original music. The songs I listened to were getting played on commercial radio. The DJs were cool as hell. The bands were cool as hell, the scene. And then the Fear Strangers ended up starting to go to New York to play at CBGB's. Mm. And I went with them. And I had already been at CBGB's before as a patron. But um, that was the first time my friends were going there to play original music. And I was actually getting more involved with CBGB's where I then ended up working. When was this again? 73 to 77. Yeah. 
And I first went to CB's probably around 75 or 76, and I became more of a regular there. I was doing fill-in, doing sound there, starting in 78. And then sooner or later, I just started running the whole place by myself. And it was great. Yeah. Dude, there's stories from there, man. CBGB's in the 80s. That is just incredible. What a place to start your career. You know, there's people that say it died after the 70s. People are very opinionated about CBGB's because it opened earlier. It had already been around five years. And, you know, the New York Dolls and the Dead Boys and Blondie and the Ramones and television and the Talking Heads, they were pre-80. But anyone that says that, I disagree with because there was a whole different type of creative scene that was evolving with bands like Sonic Youth and we still had the Bad Brains coming through and then we had the hardcore matinees which uh, it was when I first met the Beastie Boys. It was before Adam Adrock was in the band. Yeah. He was playing on the same bill, The Young and Useless. So there's a whole bunch of connections to that and actually their, I, I listened to their audio book and they described New York in the 80s better than I've ever heard anyone describe it. Mm. It was there was a chapter that just put me in tears. It was amazing. Yeah. So I really think that yeah, CBGB's carried over into the 80s. It yeah. definitely did. Yeah. So you were living in New York City at the time? Did you move down there and or where did you live when you Yeah, were- I lived in Albany, but and I lived in my parents' place when I was in New York and I was going back and forth because I ended up after college I still had a scene in Albany that I liked, so I spent a lot of time there. So I was kind of bi-coastal north and south and uh then New York, I got an apartment and actually band members from the Fear of Strangers were my roommates for a long time. It, it, it was pretty amazing. Yeah. And, you know, talking about From Good Homes, when you think about New York City in the 80s, broader than CBGB's as well as CBGB's, can you just go a little bit, you know, recall what it was like, what your experience was like during that time? Well, I was always a producer and artist at heart. So even though I was working with a lot of, you know, doing CBGBs and running it, I was always creating and producing. We had a two-inch 16-track machine there. And uh, there was a band called Crossfire Choir, which is one of the bands. I did a lot of albums there and demos that became releases on even cassette back then. We did a lot of stuff. We didn't sleep much. It was basically you had a pair of pants that smelled like cigarettes. (laughs) That's what you wore. You went home and crashed out for a bit and then you went back and we were working days and nights there. And the band Crossfire Choir really was a major blossoming for me as a producer. Uh, They were amazingly creative and we were doing a lot of things before they were ever invented. At CBGB's, they only had a thing called the Roland Space Echo, which was a slap. It was just, and I would go in there and practice. I'd put on reggae and send to the snare drum to it so I could be like and I got good on that machine but the Crossfire Choir stuff we did things like scratches no one was really doing scratching back then but we had a song called The Poser with this guy and he came out and he was a character in the show so I I had scratches on the on the recordings and um, then when we were mixing the stuff Digital Reverb was first invented and that was when the big snare sounds of that time period started happening. And this band was nothing like Crossfire Choir. I mean, nothing like From Good Homes at all. I mean, they were just really, you know, I passed their audition, fell in love with them, and then we started working together on both ends. And um, it ended up that sampling hadn't been invented yet, but we did so many creative things on the recordings 
that I put them onto cassettes and they weren't time imperative. They didn't have to be locked in, yeah. but I had a box of 30 cassettes with me that I carried on the road. We were opening for Culture Club. We were opening for Thompson Twins, uh, Midnight Oil. We were opening for all these big bands that came to America. And we were regulars at the Ritz besides CBGB's. But um, I was incorporating all these cassettes. I had them queued up right where the tape began and I'd play them into the show. And with the digital reverb, gated reverb hadn't been invented yet. Yeah. But I'm, I did it on the recording and I started doing it on the show. So I was gating every snare head manually. The whole show I'd be on every snare head and sometimes I'll let it be big. And I became a band member basically with them. And it was a great, great time for me to grow and, and learn it. And you know, I, I toured with them and I did stuff with them and they got signed and Steve Lillywhite produced the album. And in 84, I think it was, uh, they called me from London where they're doing the album and Steve Lillywhite couldn't recreate some of the stuff we did. So I got the two inch tape and I brought it to London and I spent a month in London just watching Steve Lillywhite work and learning with him. And then I brought back a lot of that to other bands that I worked with out of CBGBs because that was where I was meeting everybody and we sounded great and it was just a real good creative time yeah so you were doing you were working with this band as a producer and really like a dj in a way early on in that world right sending out sounds to the live performance as well as working cbs and and doing other bands at cbs yeah, yeah. but the the stuff i was doing with them i wasn't really a dj the scratching thing was one segment of one song where a character would come out and do that but I mean, the bottom line is I was incorporating sampled noises and sounds and voices and things like that. So if, I guess you could call it a DJ. Yeah. I was mashing things up somehow. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. before, I just want to know how you and From Good Homes intersected. But before that, thinking broader about, you know, beyond your world and music, what, how would you describe the New York, New York in the 80s? It was coming out of the seventies. I mean, it was, New York was funky in the seventies, man. And it was really, money was bad. All, all my musician friends were broke, you know, it was, but it was creative. It was really creative. Um, things got a little neatened up in the eighties, although there's a lot of stories about CBGBs that I'm not really proud of that went, you know, off the stage <laughs> that we were involved with. And uh, that didn't quite stop them. Yeah. yeah. But there was a whole different flavor of things coming on. Again, the Beastie Boys book is a really good reference for that. They talk about uh, how they hooked up with Rick Rubin and they have characters reading it. I, I really love the audiobook. like Rosie Perez is reading about how hip hop moved from uptown to the East Village and how all those things were going on. And uh, Debbie Harris book also had a bunch of cool stories about that time, too. It was pretty, pretty good stuff. It's amazing looking back on it, you know, because I had a narrow view. I was up from Sussex County, New Jersey with those guys and, so, you know, and was all about from good homes, hip hop. But to think about that time frame, you know, with hip hop and punk and the end of disco, I mean, just crazy. Uh, could you just kind yes. of talk about that a little bit? Well, it was kind of really just going with the flow. Like I'm the kind of person that is always looking for a creative aspect but at the same time, I have a, I want it to be accessible to the masses. So when I was working with bands, I don't want to change them. I just wanted to capture what I loved about them. And at the same time, bring up ideas that were involving all these other things. And literally, you'd go from working on one style to another, to another, 
not just on the live shows. I mean, every night would be so drastically different and it was all passing through my place. But then all the recordings and stuff were drastically different and it was just go with the flow. Like, you know, I wasn't a hardcore lover, but I had a major respect for it and I made it sound great and, you know, those things were all good. Um, But then there was a whole bunch of different directions that at the time people were trying to categorize more and a lot of stuff I did wasn't categorization. And a lot of work I ended up getting at that time was about artist development, which doesn't exist anymore. If you want to talk on the business end of things, besides the New York vibe, uh, I was getting hired by record companies to work with bands that they were thinking of signing. And they wanted me to take them in the studio and do demos with them so they could make their decision whether to sign them or not. And a bunch of those bands got signed and uh, some of them didn't, you know, but it was creative. Everything was just creative. That, again, that carried over into the 80s. It, was, it wasn't just in the 70s. Yeah. And I'm, you know, my, my exposure to the music industry is somewhat limited, but certainly it seems like back then it was the record deal, right? You got to get the record deal compared to now, of course, right? Where people are, um, did you, I mean, you were involved in that, right? You were working with labels. Can you talk about that, that intensity of the record deal? Most of my friends that weren't musicians were A&R people back then. And I was very close with them. A&R, you know, the guys that signed these bands. And they also had the ability to do it. it. That all deteriorated over time where there would be like four labels and one person. The part that was hard for me to explain to bands was that the goal wasn't just getting the record deal. You had to keep working after that to, to get any form of success in that direction. And the B side of that is there were a lot of amazing talents floating around that didn't get that far and to be involved with keeping them on creative juices flowing and all that kind of stuff was really good. So it was an interesting place to be in the middle ground and, you know, A&R people, I always knew where they were going. So if there was a band I didn't know about, I could meet them there where they were all coming to my place or whatever. It was just a scene of checking things out. And, you know, there were bands that I helped develop and shop, including from good homes. Yeah. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about From Good Homes? Like how, when's the first time you heard about them? Was that through Jane? Just a little bit of the history of how you connected, cross paths with them. You know, I was actually trying to remember that before this phone call and I don't. <laughs> it's it's yeah. really amazing. I just knew about them and uh, it could have been A&R people. It could have been I was at Wetlands one night and they were playing or something. Jane could have told me about it. I don't really remember the first thing. All I know is that I went to see him and I fell in love with them. And then they had a record that came out at the time called Gur, yeah. which I listened to and loved. And um, I don't even remember the first actual business meeting that we had at all. Mm. I just know that uh, once it happened, man, I was like a happy camper. It was just like, this is, this is fun. Yeah. It's good. So yeah. had you known Jane prior to that? Yeah. Yeah. I knew Jane for years. Uh, Jane, used to manage Patty Smith years before. And she was a regular on the scene with all, all the people that I was involved with at my ben- venue. So, but I, I wasn't even sure if she was working with them before me or if she came on after me, I really don't remember that part. And that's a common thing for us that worked at CBGB's and I'll leave it at that. <laughs> like we had it, Adam Harvitz came through, uh, his wife Kathleen is in Bikini Kill and they were doing a show there and he was playing guitar as Ad Rock. And uh, I hadn't seen him 
it's not like we're buddies or anything, but we go way back. Like I had mixed him in Young and Useless before he was in the Beasties. And then I had to remind him that we actually hung out in London when I was on tour with Suzanne Vega and they were on tour with uh, Run DMC. And we rode in taxis together and did all these things. We were in the same hotel, but neither of us really remember what we were doing too much. <laughs> Can you tell me about, cause you're, you're the producer on hip hop. Tell me about how that came to be. If you, and, and uh, yeah, then we'll just get into what that was. Cause that was a really funky way to make an album or a cool way. I mean, it worked, it worked well. I I'm really proud of what we did. Um, basically once we did connect and actually I think Jane was on before me and maybe she even told me about him, but anyway, um, once we connected and we started talking, I heard songs. I didn't hear them as a, your standard jam band, but here they were throwing these great parties wherever they played. They were amazingly tight. They had great songs and they were f a fun event. So they had been passed on by a couple of labels already. And I said, listen, I'd like to work with you guys. And what we kind of formulated was think, yes, the goal was to get to major labels, no doubt about that. I, I, I thought that that could happen. What I wanted to do was pick a bunch of songs that were obvious major label type songs for that period, whatever you decide that is, yeah. and do a couple of demos to them to show what a studio recording could sound like potentially, but then pick like, I don't even remember, 10 or 12, whatever's on hip hop, other songs, and let's just do it live. And, you know, they were playing in tiny rooms and I got this tiny little remote truck, cheap as hell, 16 tracks that we could record on. And we went into rehearsing and the, the main thing about the rehearsing was, um, yeah, I wanted to capture the live energy, but I also wanted to make it as a good for repeated listening. I wanted to work on the structures and the arrangements for this record, they could always extend it again live, but for this record, I wanna make it so that whatever we record has a flow to it and a beginning and an end and doesn't go on for an hour of jamming. Mm. So that was the decision for that and they ran with it. And uh, there were other songs that, even though the audiences love them, I didn't wanna put on this record because I still wanted it to sound like a song oriented record that was more upscale because they just had a wealth of material so that was the process as it began we we went into rehearsals and we made song selections and we did demos and we recorded like five or six nights and then we started picking the best takes of each you know we'd listen every day and see because they could actually nail these songs live i mean these mm -hmm. guys had been playing together so much yeah. we had good takes but we picked the best and uh then we went in and mixed it. And one of the songs actually we did live in the control room of the studio that we mixed in because I just wanted to capture a stripped down version of them doing it. Hmm. And uh, I don't know, but it, it was a great work relationship. It was like family to me. It was, it was just like being out and seeing their crowd every night while I'm on this remote truck and enjoying it while I'm working. Yeah. Yeah. It was a good thing. Yeah. So then obviously they did get signed to RCA. So that was good. Yeah. Um, just any more. I, I don't know if you recall the little venues. They were, they were tiny little ass venues in North Jersey. One of which, yeah. the Georgian, actually, I think you guys had that for a few days. So I think there was some recording going on 
or some I think filling. you're right. Yeah, we recorded at Soundcheck some of the takes. Yeah. That's correct. Yeah. And I, I don't know which were used or not, but we did it at Soundcheck. We were going to maximize our time. I recall that time frame having been a fan of them growing up, you know, and there's certainly the dead influence where there's those long jamming and we're going to tune on stage and we're going to we're going to play fun, you know, quirky songs. But that time working with, you know, with you and Jane in those years was, like you said, really tightening up and creating songs. Can you talk a little bit about their re receptivity to that? And was that uh, was that how did they how did they did they catch on quick to the concepts? They did, it, but there was always like, I'd always see a look in the eye when I first brought up an idea. Like my approach when I'm working with artists is, look, just think with me, run with me. If I want to try something, try it. If it sucks, we're all going to know it and I'll throw it out the window. But at least if I have an idea, please give it your all trying it just so we can really see if it's worth it or not. Yeah. And that was the nature of it. And, you know, if they didn't like something, it's their thing, you know, but there weren't really a ton of those types of situations. They were, they were open. I wasn't, I wasn't destroying what they were at all. Yeah. It was literally just fine tuning and tweaking. And even, you know, in the sequence of the record, like we opened with these nasty ass guitars and it was, I was saying, this is them. Okay. Yeah. You know, energy from the get go and the songs are all there. So, you know, I was respectful of what they were about. And they were respectful about what I wanted to try. It was good. Yeah. You know, it's funny. We hadn't getting into this film. We're just friends and fans. And I have a bunch of old VHS footage. It's like, oh, cool. Oh, an ability to consolidate it all. And then you start to make a film. You're like, well, what's the story, right? Is it the story? And looking back on the band and well, did they, did they make it so to say, you know, and, um, and we weren't going to go there. We're like, no, man, we're just going to lay out the music and, and have another place where the songs can do this, you know, tell the story. But it is some curious questions to think back, like, what the, f what, why not? What happened with From Good Homes? And I just have to ask, in your opinion, you know, what was the trajectory at that time? I mean, if you want to, if you want to talk about that or, or, and maybe it's just, there's so many bands and you got, everything has to fall into place to make it work. But uh, what was your What's your thought about that? You know, what, what happened with them? Well, uh, when they got signed, my friend Pete Robinson signed them at RCA. Pete had worked with Dave Matthews and stuff. And um, I like From Good Homes better than Dave, uh, song-wise in particular. But nothing's bad here. You know, labels tend to see a direction that's successful. Dave was making some noise. Pete wanted From Good Homes, and Pete loved From Good Homes. No doubt about it. Um, I did want to produce the record and that didn't happen. And it was frustrating for me after a lot of work, but uh, at the same time, the record came out and all the songs are great. Everything's great, but it, it didn't have the energy that I loved about the band on the record. It was, it was a little too smoothed out and that is not a good thing for a major label to do. So I, I wasn't really, happy with that. Having said that, you still can't tell if something's going to click or not. If, if they'd gone in a more raw live direction or something, maybe it would have made some noise, but it's really easy to second guess everything. Yeah. So, you yeah. know, I mean, the record company people have to deal with DJs that are, they need to play it and all these different things. And um, I wasn't involved in that stuff. There was no more Robin in the decision-making or anything. I was just away. So yeah. 
I don't want to criticize anybody for what they did because there's no guarantees anyway. Yeah. But I listened to the RCA record and it was, it was a little too soft for me. Yep. I was down there to do, do some photography and I didn't quite realize, but it didn't go well. You know, the whole session didn't go well. I think they had to re-record stuff later and just didn't Todd seem like told it. told me about it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Todd was at my venue, the telegram with railroad earth. And he gave me a little insight into that stuff. Yeah. It was frustrating for them. I know. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'd be curious to talk about like, you know, the, the, Jersey journalists called it hip hop and to where you were at CB's, you know, end of seventies into the eighties. And then you saw this band. How would you describe, I mean, now we can see kind of early days, jam band, maybe definitely a folky influence. If you could try to clear your brain from what you knew, what you've known in the last many years, when you first saw them, what was your reaction? How did you, what did you think it was musically? Was it, how would you classify it or why did you like it? I loved the songs and I loved that they could play them live and capture an audience and real the I mean, their shows were love fest, man. It was like everybody was in it. And that's, that's an amazing feeling. And it's, you know, I didn't need to be sold on them. I was just sold on period. It's just the way it happened. You know, I, I saw a package that I loved. It was just really, you know, something that I, I thought was worth it. I mean, you know, I didn't get paid a lot for those projects. You know, there was a, there was a bunch of reason to do all that work. So, you know, it was a good thing. Yeah. But it wasn't like uh, I had any expectations. I didn't expect to say, Oh, another jam band or something that would happen more today. Like we get a lot of jam bands passing through my venue and some are great and some are mediocre in my eyes. I'll never say which is which every band that plays my venue. It's the best show I've ever seen Yeah, that, you know, because I get in the vibe of it and my opinion doesn't really matter for that stuff. If people are enjoying it, it's great. That's it. Well, I'll I'll ask you, I want to ask you about seeing Todd lately, but any other thoughts before we uh, kind of wrap up about from good homes or anything else you wanted to say about the, the hip hop experience or. It was, I mean, for me, it was one of the high points that I can look back on and be really proud of. And I've got a lot of them. Uh, you know, this virus thing is scary, but if we were to hit tomorrow, I'll go out smiling because, you know, to have been involved in CBGBs in those days and to have gone through the creative process with bands like From Good Homes and then to work, you know, I mean, I worked for Phil Ramone doing records for a year and I, I worked on James Taylor, Carly Simon, Bruce Springsteen, Teddy Pendergrass, Donald Fagan's Nightfly, Shaka Khan and Rufus Stomp and the Savoy. I mean, and then I went back to live and all the bands hit, you know, Suzanne Vega, Sean Colvin, the B-52s when Love Shack was out, Sia, uh, Laurie Anderson was amazing. I worked with her for years. The Blue Nile, one of my favorite bands ever for Scotland. So it's, I don't know, that's really it. It's been a great ride. And they were definitely a major, major thing that I will never forget. Cool. Yeah. And then how about, I actually, it was nice to hear Jane's voice. Like I left her a message earlier. So how did you intersect with Jane and what would, did you, you guys worked on a number of things together? Or like, how did, how did you meet Jane? I met her probably at CB's again. It's not, I don't remember first meeting, but we knew each other really well. Yeah. And uh, we had interacted often and I did a couple other things with her. I don't remember which is which, but um, we were always involved and always talking. And that went on way after like, even after I started, I was by coastal for 15 years, starting in uh, 96 when I got an apartment in LA. And uh, 
I would spend every Christmas with Jane and it was a collection of people. It would be a game night. You'd show up and there would be all these wrapped packages and you had to play these games to get them. And, you know, Artie Vega was there, the Ramones guy that designed the logo and managed them. He's an old friend and BG and his wife and kid were there. BG did the door at CBGB's for years. And this was family to me. So I always look forward to the Christmas day parties at Jane's house. Yeah. So you recently, Todd came through, I guess, a couple times now into the into your uh, place out there in L.A. And you guys have been able to reconnect yeah. a little bit. Can you tell me about that. The first time that they came through, I didn't know what to expect because I was a little hurt when I didn't get to do the album and they moved on. So I didn't know what my mood would be. And as soon as I saw him, I melted. <laughs> it was just like nothing ever happened. I was just really happy to see the guy. And uh, we talked a little that day. It was it, his band Railroad Earth has a big setup, and it's a work day. The people are great to work with, but it, there's a lot to do. So we didn't hang that much. But then, you know, I had spoken to him about. I, I don't remember how it came up, but when we were talking about something, I, I was like Black Elk Man. And they did the song on the encore, and they I guess they don't play it that often. They were kind of rehearsing it in the dressing room. And he, he came out and he said something really nice about me, which I wish I had on tape because I started crying in the sound booth. It was just like a puddle of Robin. That was it. So then I was just psyched when he got booked to come back again because we got over that hump and I had, you know, someone back that I cared about. Yeah. So it, it was great. And, you know, hopefully I'll run into the other guys at some point somewhere along the line, you know. Yeah. When you when you heard that Black Elk, were you kind of flashing back to times in the van out in Vernon at the George Inn? <laughs> Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was amazing. No. And the other thing, the other thing that I do want to say is that I obviously stopped listening to them after the RCA record and was away getting over that part of my life. But after the reconnect, I went back and listened to a bunch of stuff that they've done without me and without RCA. And it felt really good because it was way more in the style of what we did together. So I must've got something right. And that that's a good feeling also. Yeah. So railroad earth. I mean, I, I hadn't listened to much railroad earth, but when I started doing this film, I started listening. It was like, Oh my goodness. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Todd's written some songs, huh? Todd, man, all I need is him and an acoustic guitar. And it's great. Yeah. I mean, that's that. So now he's got another family that he's touring with and they're all really brilliant musicians and they do great stuff. And he's still got the material. Again, I, I know I'm being redundant, but when I hear the songs, it's what grabs me and what goes on around it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And it was cool. To, they just went back in the studio. I don't know if you knew that. From Good Homes. I have their latest record. Todd gave me one. Oh, cool. Yeah. And I love it. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. I think Todd talks about that. They all talk about it. That being the most collaborative, you know, I think in the past they'd come with songs, but they came in somewhat clean slate. I'm sure there was ideas brewing, but yeah. they went in and just kind of brought it up together. And it was just really nice. It was living in my car nonstop for a couple of weeks. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Well, just final wrap up, but just about what's happening now, man. How are you, how are you enduring this crazy uh, pan global pandemic of 2020? You doing all right? I'm doing okay. I mean, I, I think I might have even had it already. Like I was really sick. My voice is still husky, but mm. my symptoms weren't the worst of the symptoms. I was I like I my fever was going from high to low to high to low. I was sweating and freezing, but 
I never got to 103 like some people get. And I had headaches. I had no energy for a week, but then that started trickling back in. And I didn't cough, but I had no voice. My voice completely went away. So was it that? I have no idea. All I know is I'm feeling better from that and I'm playing by all the rules. Uh, I hope people are staying at home. It's a big deal. And um, as far as the other part, you know, I'm a really proud daddy of the Tyrogram. It's the first time I helped build a venue from the get-go and was involved in it becoming what it is. And I'm really proud of it. And I, I really hope they can endure. The owners are very proactive, you know, reaching out in every direction that they can to try and get funding uh, appropriately. And they're also, you know, my role at the Telegram right now doesn't exist because we're not booking shows. So I'm the production manager. I have nothing to do and we're not doing the show. So they have asked me to go on unemployment, which of course I did. And my health insurance is now on Cobra, but they're paying my health insurance in full at the moment. And um, that was a really nice gesture on their part. So I'm just praying for them because I want to go back, you know, I'm, I'm not done. <laughs> yeah. 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 But the live scene, you know, like I'm exploring other potential situations. Like today I was telling you, I went to a seminar, a webinar about um, audio with people that were teachers that were doing classes of uh, choirs and orchestras and stuff and how they were doing it using what's available um, and I was hoping to find out more about the latency issues. I, you know, I was wondering, can we actually have people playing at the same time? And the answer seems to be no. I was hoping to maybe hear about something I didn't know about, yeah. but it didn't make me optimistic, but I'm, I'm still thinking of directions that could be uh, used if we can't just do the live shows Yeah. because, you know, it could go on a while. That's right. And uh you got to be creative. You got to think. So there's no, there's plenty of time to think right now. Yeah. <laughs> well, cool, man. It was such a pleasure to connect with you again. Yeah. This was actually fun. <laughs> yeah. 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 Cool, man. Well, thanks so much, Robin. All right. Well, hello there. How are you? We're called from good homes. <laughs> <laughs>